in three, two, one. Is conflict hampering your results? This episode will show you how to focus on the task at hand, provide you with confidence when navigating difficult situations, and gain peace in your professional and personal relationships. The collaboration effect will give you the framework you need for active listening, connecting with others, and negotiating closure even with difficult people. After listening to this episode, you will take actions to overcome tough situations and enhance collaboration with others. Join me now for my conversation with Michael Gregory. Well, hi, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. We appreciate you making some time for us. Well, thank you, Michael. It's my pleasure to be with you. I appreciate you inviting me to be here. Where are we speaking to you from today? Where are you? I'm in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area here in Minnesota. Oh, well, nice. We know that as a business professional, entrepreneur, solopreneur, or human being, our success depends on our ability to work with others. So whether you like it or not, eventually you have to work with someone else in order to create something or get something done. Now, you teach in your work that when you're part of a work environment that's aligned and closely connected, that group will flourish, that organization will flourish, which will in turn benefit them as individuals and professionals and increase their bottom line. So how did you in your work, and I know you've got a varied business background and have worked in lots of different areas as a mediator, as a negotiator, and you work in lots of different industries. How did you find a passion for what you're doing? How did you discover this, the benefits of collaboration? Well, I actually start off with, I first learned about collaboration when I was born and I joined my twin brother, Mark in my other four siblings. right? And I would say from a very early age, we learned that if we collaborate with each other, we can get things done. And we learned that if we couldn't get it collaborated with each other, if we were playing with the ball, the ball would disappear. So we said, hey, we got to find a way to make this work. Now that's on the very basic level and how I got started. Sure. But, but I'll share a story with you that uh, I was an executive, had about 1200 employees and we won an award. So what do we want to do with the award? And we sent five bargaining unit. We had a union, five bargaining unit and five managers to training on mediation. Right. I came back. I was the assistant director. The director said, two division chiefs are fighting about a budget. Go in and mediate that. I went in and it worked. He couldn't believe it worked. Well, <laughs> that's what got me started. So if you ask me what got me started, yeah. that's when I realized I had been doing this for a number of years. I hadn't even known I was really doing mediation, but the course introduced me to it. And then I applied it when I came back from that class. That's how I got started. Well, collaboration is an important aspect of business and as individuals, and the better we can collaborate, there's lots of benefits that come from it. In your book, The Collaboration Effect, Overcoming Your Conflicts, you say that your process is based on neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And I was very intrigued by that. And I know you've studied neuroscience. You've looked at scans and brain scans and worked with medical professionals. How does that work? How does collaboration fit into it from a neuroscience perspective? Well, there's something out there called the amygdala hijack. And folks thought that's how it worked. And that's been out there for over 20 years. It's like with the Maslow hierarchy of needs. People think that's how it works. Right. Well, last year in November, a friend of mine, his name is John Molitor. He's from Michigan State University. He's a neuroscientist, psychologist, and a medical doctor, associate dean at Michigan State. He educated us that it's beyond the amygdala hijack. That's actually now old thinking. And what really happens, it's our entire nervous system. So we are geared to protect ourselves against anything that's going to attack us. Right. So our brain is fired up that if something's attacking you, lion's chasing you, adrenaline kicks in, cortisol kicks in, you're off and running. Yeah. Fight or unfortunately, flight. your brain can't differentiate that from an argument in the office. It also views that as an attack. Mm -hmm. And it's your entire nervous system. It's not just the amygdala hijack. So you have high definition visual eyes that go right to the brain. And there, your brain likes to have 
predictability, likes to have control, likes to see progress. And it reinforces what you've seen previously and experienced. And when something happens, it's going to say, oh, this is what's happened in the past. I'm here to protect you. So any biases that we've built up over time, those stereotypes we've built up over time, we're reinforcing those. And then relative to something that's going to trigger you, make you angry, it could be a smell. It right. can be a taste. It can be something you hear, something you touch, be something you see. And that historical experience is what's going to set you off. So what overcomes that? Your prefrontal cortex, that's, that's right. on the brain. It comes in and says, hey, Mike, your boss said something to you. And you just want to fire back. But you know what? Your brain says food, water, shelter, sex. We're out to protect those things. Right. If I go back and tell my <laughs> boss what I think right now, what's going to happen? I could lose my job. Right. I could lose a promotion. I could lose the bonus. I could do... Work I don't want to do versus work I want to do, what gets assigned to me. So your prefrontal cortex jumps in and says, time out, Mike. Don't get angry on this one. But what do we do? We sometimes let that go when we're with family or with others and we say things and do things where we've lost control. I know that when input comes in, our amygdala sees that first and that's what's in our database. It automatically reacts to that. So it's in our database and it's there. And so I know for myself, when we're reacting or we're relaxed or not totally present, whether it's with a family member, somebody close, that amygdala kicks in, we have to reason it. And what I've learned, and I don't know what your experience is with this, but by asking myself a question, and you even call that something in your book, it's self-distancing, and ask Mm -hmm. yourself a question and go, hey, you can't be in both places at the same time. So by asking the question, you can move into and then take a more methodical approach to it, maybe something less oscillatory in its nature. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, the self-distancing thing, if you watch major sports figures, right, and they have a bad day, let's say LeBron James in basketball, famous right. basketball player. Yeah, number one. And hey, LeBron, you had a bad day today. What happened? He doesn't say, I had a bad day. I got to focus. He says, LeBron had a bad day. He uses his own name. And he's been taught to do that by sports psychologists. Because then he's looking at himself instead of feeling himself that I, I, I. He's going LeBron, LeBron, LeBron. And you can do that with yourself. Or let's say you're driving in that traffic and somebody cuts you off. Right. You have a choice. You can get angry at them. You can say to yourself, I'm feeling right now that I'm getting angry. You know what? I'm not going to let that person get me angry. You know what? I don't know why they're running so fast and why they cut me off, but I'm glad they're past me. Right. And I'm glad they're going away and speeding away. And you know what? I'm not going to get angry about this. Right. You can actually train yourself to do that. And the way I do it is say, Mike, my name be me. Mike, <laughs> yeah, I do let it. it go. Mike, yeah. let it go. And I think about that myself. And it's like, hey, that just changed the whole dynamic of I right. was going to get angry at that guy versus I'm looking at myself. I do the same thing. I golf. And whenever I have an errant shot or I do something kind of dozy or whatever, I just go, oh, Michael. And I talk, Michael, you can do this. Come on, Mike, you got this. And I didn't know there was a term for it. So until I read your book, it disassociates it from you personally to where you're kind of coaching and observing yourself. So I like that. In your book, you've created from your years of experience as a mediator and as a negotiator and working in literally over 20, I got exhausted looking at your bio. You've been in, conducted over 2,500 mediations and negotiations from neighborhood disputes to even gang disputes, which I thought was interesting. I bet there's stories to tell there. And small, large corporate deal, you name it, the the full gambit of it. So you're very familiar with it. And you created a framework for creating positive outcomes, win-win, but not always win-win. It could also be acceptable outcomes for both parties. How did you discover or create the actual framework? Well, I started off with that course I was in, but then a lot of this is experience over time. And I'm taking continual training Every year. I'm a qualified mediator with the Minnesota Supreme Court, have been since 2004. Right. And as I'm going to take training every year to maintain that certification, 
but I do more than that. I also research. I love researching things yeah. and sharing with others. Yeah. So then I do research on things and then I make presentations and I continually am learning from others. So my perspective is I'm never done learning this thing. I'm taking courses right now on bias in particular, just for myself personally. I try to be unbiased, but as a mediator, the parties make the decision in a mediation. I facilitate the process and the parties are going to make all the decisions and I need to adjust to them with wherever they're coming from. And if I feel a bias towards one or the other, I have to center myself. It's neutral. I'm a neutral. It's confidential. The parties make the decisions in the end. It's their agreement. It saves them a tremendous amount of money versus going and litigating on the issue. So the reason people do this is it can save them tremendous time and money. And it makes sense. And the goal of all your mediations or negotiations is obviously to create a solution that both sides can appreciate. But sometimes that end result is something both sides can just accept, right? Right. In the business world, I have a very high success rate, but that's because I meet with the parties ahead of time. Mm. I develop trust with them. I actually discuss with them whether we should go forward or not. And if I don't think we should go forward, we don't. Okay. Really? Okay. Yes. But I don't want to waste their time. No. In my volunteer world, you're talking about public housing court, conciliation court, neighborhood disputes, gangs. In that environment, I don't have that luxury. So I'm literally thrown into a situation. Right. And in that environment, since I couldn't build trust beforehand, my success rate is not as good. Okay. Right. But having said that, I always point out it's up to the parties. And I'm going to try and be neutral with respect to the parties. And in those situations, especially the volunteer ones, if we don't reach an agreement for the first time, generally, both parties have been heard. Right. Being heard is very significant heard and going understood. forward, even if they still decide to go to litigation yeah. or whatever they're going to do going forward, mm -hmm. because they've each been heard, that really helps to de-escalate the situation. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring ActiveCampaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? ActiveCampaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose ActiveCampaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the ActiveCampaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Michael Gregory. Why is our natural tendency to escalate over the last year? There's been a number of issues that have caused a lot of grief for a lot of people around escalation. And we see it, for instance, we know our boys and girls in blue are out there protecting us and doing the best that they can, but they get in an environment where it's fight or flight and survival. And we don't always understand it from their end. And we tend to attack or we see an outcome that's maybe not positive. Why is our natural tendency to, and obviously it's going back to the amygdala again, and we're into that fight mode versus a de-escalation. So I know you talk about de-escalation. There's ways to de-escalate a situation. And lots of police officers are good. As a matter of fact, I was talking to one of my officer friends, and he was telling me that there's literally two to three million police interactions a year, but there's only a handful of these ones that make the news. We don't hear about the other two to three million 
positive interactions with the community. But what's going on in our brains that creates that? So you tell a story, for instance, in your book of, I think it was an estate case that involved IRS and a team of lawyers. And the lawyers engaged with you in order to combat the IRS. We're going to go to battle. And the first approach is to that. And you guided them on a different approach and it had an entirely different outcome. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, an appraiser called me and said, you're going to get a call from an attorney and there's an issue here. And I'm just going to stick with this one major issue, a valuation issue. And the IRS is at 10% and the taxpayer's appraiser was 30 to 35%. And the attorney called me up and said, it's a big issue. We've got a half dozen attorneys involved with this. We're going to tell them why they're wrong on this little issue. And then we're going to tell them why they're wrong on this bigger issue. It's going to be unagreed. We're going to go to appeals. We're going to settlement and appeals. How can you help me? Right. And I said to them, if that's what you do, you don't need me. And then there's a pause. And he said, what would you do? He said, well, the first thing I do is I need to establish trust with this IRS agent. So I want to call up this IRS agent and say, I don't know you. You don't know me. Can we just learn some things about each other? This guy also didn't have the strongest emotional intelligence. So I had to counsel him on how to do small talk <laughs> right. on how to reach out to this guy yeah. and just ask a bunch of questions. What happened as a result of that? I said, talk to him for about 15 minutes on small talk. Right. And then I said, then bring up this legal issue and discuss that, see where it goes. And then we'll see what happens. Well, he called me up. He said, I called up this guy. We spoke about 15 minutes. I looked because on my watch in the 15 minutes, I stopped the small talk. <laughs> and then the guy says, I spoke to him about this issue. And we got that thing resolved in about a half an hour. I was going to write a 40-page brief. We got it resolved. Right. So we want your help on this bigger valuation issue. And I said, it's like hockey. You got three periods. The first period is connecting relationships. Right. I want you to invite him to your office. You got a beautiful office there in Boston. You're looking out on the harbor. Right. I said, you want the right foods there? So we got into the right foods of Erica Garms wrote a book called The Brain-Friendly Workplace. Yeah, that was interesting. You want antioxidants. You want blueberries. You want cut up fruit. You want celery sticks, carrot sticks, dark chocolate, peanut butter. And you're going to offer this to this person right. and they're not going right. to take it. But you also learn this person is a coffee person and a morning person. So you have a morning meeting. And we're going to have Starbucks coffee because that's the kind of coffee the guy likes. Right. And when you bring them on in, you're not there with six attorneys. You're with one other attorney. And the three of you are going to sit around a round table. You're going to offer food and drink and person's not going to take any, but I want you to take some because I want them to smell and see. And you're going to be tasting whatever you're taking in terms of those foods. And you're going to take the first period and just work on connecting relationships. And although you already know a lot, the person you brought with you is an engaging person. That one person with you is an engaging attorney. And you're just going to have small talk for maybe 20 minutes, half an hour. And then you're going to go to the second period. The second period is you're going to ask the IRS, how did you get your 10%? And this is no judgment. You're now going to paraphrase, summarize, ask open-ended questions. You're going to suspend your own judgment. You're going to empathize with the IRS person with what they know. Right. And you're going to not offer any advice. And that's in that second period of another 20 minutes, half an hour. Then you're going to go to the third period. And the third period... You're going to educate them the way they want to be educated. The IRS happened to have a job aid on this topic. And on that job aid, it says there are things to consider. And we looked at what the appraiser did. And of 32 things, the appraiser considered 10. We looked at that job aid and we said, well, here are eight more things that it turns out the appraiser didn't consider. Right. So I want to get them to say yes. So we're going to say, hey, here's another fact that the appraiser didn't include or no. It would tend to increase this thing. Do you think it would? And the person says, yes. And they said yes eight times. So we've gone through connecting relationships, listening actively, educating judiciously the way they want to be educated. Right. And now the, the pivotal question comes in and it says, we started this, you were at 10%. And we have an appraisal that said 30 to 35%, but we put 30% on the return. But you've now agreed that these eight things we brought up would tend to increase this number. Could you live with 35%? The IRS agent pauses and thinks about it a moment and says, could you live with 34%? To which my client said, yeah, we can live with 34%. It went from owing $1.6 to a $400,000 refund. 
Nice. No, this was not manipulative. No. This was authentic relationship interactions. Well, the attorney got all excited, asked me to fly out to Boston, and I spoke to the law firm there in Boston, about half of their attorneys. And then some of those attorneys had gone to Harvard. And so I've been invited twice to come back to what's called the Harvard Club in Boston and talk to them about this example and additional elements beyond this example. So if folks say, does this work? I go, yeah, it does. Does it work every time? No. But does it work? Yes, it does. And if you can do this and you just think about conflicts and with IRS and where they're at with that kind of money, yeah, it doesn't get worse. This can work in many different environments, but right. it, it takes practice to really do these three steps. A lot of our audience are entrepreneurs, they're business people, they're C-level executives, they're from all walks of life. And mm -hmm. anytime we're interacting with other human beings, a collaboration goes a long way. And there's a lot of benefits that come from that. But I think it's developing that mindset, that collaboration mindset, and why does that matter? You talk about it in your book, it's good for bottom line, it's good for customer satisfaction, employee engagement, training development, leadership, it goes on and on and on. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of benefits of collaboration that come from it. You talk about increased productivity, companies are going to work a little better. There's a number, two or three of them in there. You want to share a few of those other benefits that come from collaborating that business owners, business people can benefit from? Well, you just hit on all of the major points as to these elements, but the Harvard Business Review, I, some credibility there with their research, Harvard Business Review came out and said, and I don't have these statistics just off the top of my head, but they came through and said, for example, you can be 70% more productive. You can reduce sick days by, I don't remember, 25% or something. Wow. But they had a dozen statistics that said, look at companies that are good at trust and collaboration and compare it with those that don't have that. And you can see statistically significant differences right. between these two. And as you pointed out, when you stop and think about it, where would you rather work? Who would you rather work with? Who would you rather have as a vendor? Or who would you rather have as a customer? Right. And you say, these people that we can get on the same page with and we can relate to each other, and we can understand each other, and we can work collectively. Communication is just about dialogue back and forth. But collaboration says, we have a goal. We're trying to do something here. So if we can get on the same page with the goal of what we're trying to do, and we're all aligned going the same direction, intuitively, that has to be better. So I speak on how you can promote collaboration or how you can reduce conflict. It's either reducing the pain or increasing the gain. And how does that relate with the different generations? So in our workforce, in today's environment, We've got our millennials, our Gen X, we've got the baby boomers. That's kind of you and I are in that world. When we see collaboration, everyone's going to look at that from a different lens, right? A different perspective. How can we bring that collaboration again across generational lines? Well, I'm going to share a little story with you. And this will, I think, help. Okay. I'm a baby boomer. I like to have the conversation. I like to be on the phone. Yeah. I like to interact with people. I have millennials, but now I'm going to go into even Generation Z. And my kids are married. They're into fantasy football. They need another person. I want to get engaged with them. And I said, I'd like to join this fantasy football team. Now, to put things in perspective, all my kids want to do is they want to work off of sending texts. If I even send a text and say, can you call me? They'll say about what? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> as far as uh, voicemail goes, one of my children just says, I keep it completely filled, dad. So if anybody calls me, it says, this right. is full. You can't leave no, a message because you need to send me a text. Okay. Right. Now, I need to get into their world, and I'm a baby boomer. I can tell you that since they're into this, I need to go where they are and what they're into. So I joined this league. I'll tell you, by the time we got done at the end of the league, they developed another award for this league, and the award was the guy who asked the most questions. <laughs> and that was to right. me. But on the other hand, I had to get into their world and where they're coming from. Right. And now if you think about attitudes, now this is how the baby boomer can help out Generation Z and millennials. Think about attitude. In terms of communication, 7% of the attitude comes from the words. That's the text or the email. 
Mm -hmm. 37% of the attitude on average here is going to come from the tone. So at least if I pick up a phone and I'm talking to somebody, I've got 45% of the attitude overall because of the words and the tone I'm hearing. Right. But if I'm talking to somebody face to face, I see their facial expression and body language. That's 55% of the attitude. Right. So as a baby boomer, if I have a conflict, I want to be face to face. But what do the Generation Zs want primarily? They want that text. So I need to get in their world with the text and relate to them with where they're coming from. But then I have to help them say, I need help from you. And can you help me? Let's sit down and talk about this. These are all gross simplifications and stereotypes here. But right. the bottom line is, how can I get in their world and how can I help them? So that's how baby boomers, I think, can do a lot to help out somebody who's really technically savvy and knows a lot more than me in a host of different areas. But how can we relate to each other to help one another and to listen to one another with where they're coming from? Yeah, it's interesting because we have that divide in business and it's good advice for the baby boomers because we're the ones that need to move to our audience because it's how they're raised. There's very little communication. I always call it creeping their Instagram and Facebook pages. To me, it's the new mall. When we were younger, we'd go to the mall and we were seen at the mall. We'd go see everybody. But today they do it all on social. Here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm doing. And I kind of like that because I actually get better communication. You get on the social media sites and text with them, they get engaged. It's more interesting to them. So it's worth learning because it is all about that connection. That's why the internet is so powerful is it's about that connection. So I think using and, all those tools is what you're saying will help us cross that generational divide. And when you're in business and you're going to be meeting with somebody new, you need to use those sources. There's right. no question. Yeah. You need to get on the internet, need to get on LinkedIn, Facebook, Reddit, all different sources. And what can I learn and with folks that I know who know something about these folks? Because you want to find the way that you can relate to them in some way, shape or form. And the sooner we can begin to relate to each other and with whatever we have in connections right. back and forth, the better that relationship going forward. That's actually one of your strategies in negotiation to kind of maybe tilt the skills or give you an advantage or at least some insights is to know the person you're talking to. So what kind of homework do you recommend? So if I'm going after a new account, maybe a new business partner or whatever, what would you normally do in your day-to-day -day work, if you will, to get to know me better? Well, I'm oftentimes involved with a team, let's just say in a negotiation. Right. And I actually network with my team. What do we know? What insights do you have? You've talked with this person before or whatever. So my network is number one. Right. But then number two, I am absolutely, I'm going to Google them. I'm going to look right. at LinkedIn, Facebook, everything I can. I'll just share with you. I'm here in Minnesota. So you have the Carlson School of Business there in Minnesota. And I'm involved with helping to teach a class. I'm just a guest speaker sure. in a course. It deals with conflict resolution in that MBT class. So the first week I come in there and I talk with them about these things we just talked about. And then I say, when I come back next week, they all have an assignment. They have to research me and figure out how would you try to connect with Mike Gregg? Mm, interesting. Okay? Mm -hmm. And we've been doing this now for five years. I'm telling you, the skill level of where we were five years ago versus where these students are today, it's unbelievable. I'm close to the state fairgrounds here, Okay, right. about a mile and a half. State fair in Minnesota is a big deal. And so one of the folks in here, he lived about a mile and a half from the state fairgrounds. I bet he goes to the state fairgrounds. I'm going to bring up the state fair. And I'm like, Absolutely. Right. We go there at least twice every year. I go with my wife. I also go again with my kids and grandkids. It's a big deal to us. That guy, just on looking at geography, came in and put that together. I'm just giving you this as one little example. Right. But the point is, and I'm teaching them. So before you go into a negotiation with someone else, or you're involved with a mediation with a neutral mediator, but the other side's over on the other side, do this stuff ahead of time. And then I tell them what things they got that were right what things they got that actually mean something to me. And the point was, right. you need to come up with some way to mean something to me. Because when you bring that up, 
boy, are we going to click with whatever things we have in common? I think you're looking for commonality. And when we have commonality, we get likability and we look for similar values. You talk about identifying different values. One of the most important questions I ever ask when I'm going in for an interview, I'll do the homework that you've talked about. But one of my best questions that I'll ask somebody, and I usually wait, I call it the Columbo question. We've talked business, we get to the door and remember Columbo, we used to turn around, I'm probably dating myself there, but you turn around and he goes, one more thing. And then a sloppy way he'd ask a question, which is the whammy question. This is the one that got you and sent you to jail, right? This is where he got you. And I always turn to them and I always, hey, I got to ask you. So, hey, Mike, when you're not working 60 hours a week, when you're not working 12 hours a day, so I give them the benefit of that they're working hard, what do you do for fun? And yes. they always tell me, I could write a book just on that, on what they tell me. And then that's my bingo. That's how I'm into it. And I remember one case example, I was talking to an engineering company and talking to the executive and I'm getting nothing, no feedback. This guy was a poker player and I'm leaving the meeting going, man, this is brutal and not, no business here. And we get to the door and I asked him, he said, when you're not working 60 hours a week, what do you do for fun? He goes, I mountain climb. I go, technical or backpacking? And he goes, technical. I said, well, what have you climbed? He takes me back into his office, opens up one of those dual door flip chart things, and it's packed with clippings of him, pictures with mountain climbers on K2, on base camp on Everest, all the mountains he's done. Now he becomes alive. Bingo, I got him. And from there, I used that information. I sent him a book immediately from a couple of buddies of mine who've climbed Everest three times called Power and Passion. I sent that book to him, said, hey, I had another buddy, the first Canadian who climbed Everest. I sent him information for him, Laurie Skreslet. And I said, hey, would you be interested in a conversation? And set that up. Just started bombarding him with stuff he was interested in. We ended up getting the deal. And I remember three months later, another consultant friend of mine said, hey, congratulations on landing that account. I said, oh, thanks. He says, what'd you have on Roger? And I go, what do you mean have on? He goes, I was in the meeting when you got awarded the contract. And he goes, I've never seen someone advocate for a company so positively and enthusiastically as Roger did for yours. And I said, oh, nothing, just good services. I know exactly what it was. Story after story after story, and I know you could do the same on when you know something personal about them, it creates that relationship and commonality. I stop people cold when I've asked them, what have you been thinking about lately? Oh, that's a Just great question. What, what have you been thinking about lately? Or in the book, The Collaboration Effect, I've got a little pocket guide. Yeah. The pocket guide has questions that are associated with what you want to ask when you're listening. And my favorite question in here is, what would you like to have happen? So if you're in this negotiation or you're in a conflict with somebody, and then listen. And again, without judgment here, again, suspend judgment. Do right. not offer advice. You're just listening. And the more you're going to ask questions, well, tell me more about that. The more you're asking questions and asking me to tell me more, they're now telling you what they really think because you're giving them an opportunity to do that. So a tip for people in terms of sales, there's right. a book out there called The Asking Formula. And the right. book comes from John Baker. Mm -hmm. He was the CEO of Shearson American Express for 10 years. How many CEOs have been a CEO for a Fortune 100 company for 10 years? It's like right. unheard of. But I heard him speak in January of 2019. And I've put this in my toolbox ever since. Know what you want. Ask for it. Right have three reasons why it's beneficial for them. And if you do that ahead of time with what you've researched, you know, right. what you think, once you start to do all these things we've talked about, well, then later on, you can modify that or you've come up with even different ones or better ones because you've now learned things about them. Right. And then what are you supposed to do? Seal it. Yeah. Stop. Just shut your mouth. Stop talking. You have all this stuff when you <laughs> want to tell them, don't tell them squat. Yeah. Answer their questions, but don't tell them squat. It can be 55 minutes of relationship and five minutes on whatever yeah. the technique yeah. is. Yeah, you know? it's amazing. We're so programmed in, hey, I got to convince you or pitch you that we don't take time to actually listen to them. It's like when we ask somebody, hey, how are you doing today? You know, the standard answer, oh, I'm good. And then I'll say, well, how are you doing really? 
oh man, I'm glad you asked. My life's falling apart because no one really wants to go there. And, right. and sometimes you're probably scared that you even ask that question to some people. You probably don't want to ask that question. Let's move into the business side of this, because one thing that was very struck that was interesting to me is in your book that you say that organizations should choose collaboration over competition. That was interesting to me because a lot of the companies we work with, they're competing. They're trying to beat their competitors all the time. And there's lots of benefits from identifying that and collaborating versus confrontation or competition, if you will, because it has a bunch of negative effects as well. Talk about that for a few minutes. Well, competition, if it's healthy and everybody's on the same page and we have this joint goal, that's fine. That's a healthy competition. All too often, we get into a negative competition. Right. If you're a distance runner, yes, I'm competing the guy who's next to me. But what you're really competing against is yourself and your own time. Right. And for the folks who focus on doing the right thing and doing what they do best, they're the ones that are going to win out in that race in the long term. So I'm taking this now into a business setting. And if what I'm trying to do is compete against them, let's just say it's price or it's quality or it's delivery time or whatever. What I want to do is I want to look at myself and say, what is it that I have that's a competitive advantage? What can I do to enhance that? Maybe I should even collaborate with them. Maybe I should collaborate with someone else. Within our own function, how well are we doing our job to get the best out of what we do and the best out of the people of what we have? So if I look at myself, I was a controller in an area where there were 31 different districts. And of the 31 districts, we were all being evaluated on six things. And at the beginning of this year, we were in the bottom three of all 31 districts in all six categories. Mm -hmm. So we only had one way to go. Mm -hmm. And they were totally dysfunctional. They actually, there's a union and they had... Union grievances against half the group against the other half the group. Just imagine how dysfunctional this was. <laughs> right. So I come into this. Very and I was common. put in there because my, my director said, I've tried three other folks who are CPAs, et cetera, and I want you to go. I said, I'm not a CPA. It's a controller shop. I'd like you to go because of what I've seen on how you work with folks. So mm-hmm. I went in there and I talked to each of them individually. And then I spoke to the two factions. They got ourselves a facilitator. And I said, let's look at these six things. I'm not out to try and get any number. I'm not trying to be number one or anything, but why do we do what we do? And we filled up three big flip charts with three columns each of post-it notes. So nine columns of how we did a given task. Because they're teaching me because I don't know how we do any of this stuff. Right. Then I said, what do you think we should do? We pulled out a new big flip chart. It was one and a half columns of post-it notes. That's what we think we should do. So I said, let's just take this and let me talk to our stakeholders. What do they need or want? It went from one and a half columns of post-it notes to one flip chart and two columns of post-it notes. Right. So for a month, we did both of those in a test. And what happened? We cut something down that was taking 30 days to three days. Well, we did that on all six of these things. At the end of a year, on what we were being evaluated on these six different measures, we were in the top three of all districts across the country. We were in the bottom three a year ago. So they said, how'd you do that, Mike? And I said, I listened to my people. I asked them about the process, what you think we should be doing, et cetera. That was a collaboration. Everybody felt very successful. They did a Gallup poll every year at work where I was, all the different functions. And on a scale of one to seven on trust with your manager, we were at 2.5. At the end of the year, we were 6.5. But it's because you're authentic. You really care. You want to help these folks. Transparent. You developed all these things. In business, I'm coming back in. I wasn't competing against those other districts. Right. Yes, but no, not really. I was actually saying, what do we need to do to compete against ourselves? Right. So when they came to that collaborative mode, I think that story tells a lot about what the results were when you focused on the basics. Famous UCLA coach, Coach Wooden, if he talks about what he did, and if you've read his book, I'm an older guy, so I've read his book, I believe in what Wooden was preaching. He starts off with the first day, he's got some of the best basketball players in the country coming. We're going to talk about how you put on your socks and how you put on your shoes and how you lace them up. 
That's his first day with folks at the first day coming into basketball with new right. basketball recruits. And then we're going to focus on the basics and we focus on the basics with what we're doing. We don't need a whole lot of high flash and stuff. You guys know how to play basketball. We're going to enhance skills, but we need to operate as a team. When you have folks operating as a team and you're aligned in business, you will be successful, but you need to get everybody on the same page with wherever it is we're going. Well, it's interesting you use that metaphor. Pat Riley, who was the coach of the Lakers, 85, 86, they won back-to-back championships. And to your point, he put the team together and he said, look, guys, here's five skill set areas, free throw, dribbling, inbounding the ball, so forth. I want a 1% improvement in each of those five areas. And the team kind of like, what are you talking about? He goes, I want 1% improvement in each of those five areas. Well, they won the back-to-back championships, but a stat that the public never got was team performance improved over 60%. 12 players times five habits times 1%. So doing what you're saying, it has an exponential return on an investment when we're collaborating. That's a great insight on your part. I like that. It's a great insight on your part. Now, you talk about skills and we have to develop our collaboration skills. And I thought, all right, well, what are those? And what can we do to enhance them? So how would you define, somebody's asking, well, what are the skills I should be developing, Mike? What what do you recommend? Well, again, I'm going to come back to developing relationships with others. Right. So you've got three different kinds of intelligence. You have an emotional intelligence, you have a conversational intelligence, and you have a listening intelligence. And folks who are strong in all three of these will be successful in a whole host of different areas. So you can do research on emotional intelligence, and there are books on this, there are tests you can take, et cetera. And then I come back to conversational intelligence, the book that's written by Judith Glasser. And I come back to listening intelligence. I have several books relative to listening, but it's coming back down to the basics. I put it into connecting relationships, listening actively, educating judiciously, and why? In order to build bridges and negotiate closure. Whether we're working on a negotiation to get something done or collaboratively to get something done, that's the absolute basics of what we're trying to do. Yeah, and you really go into a lot of description. I totally recommend the book. This one should be on everybody's bookshelf and after they've read it several times and written through it and identified all the key points because you really are very formulaic in that. So we talk about the act of listening. You talk about building relationships, how to manage those relationships, finding common ground through common values and what that looks like. So why do companies focus so much on the bottom line and not fully explore the power of collaboration? And is this what they're teaching in business school these days? Actually, this is kind of neat. In school today, I'm in Minneapolis, St. Paul, right? and I'm watching the kids who are grade schoolers, middle schoolers, high schoolers, and I'm looking at these kids who are University of Minnesota, University of St. Thomas, and I'm looking at MBA students and all these. You know what they're teaching all of them? They're teaching all of them collaboration. Excellent. And then they come into the business world, (laughs) and the business (laughs) world says, this is your job. This is your funnel. This is what you do. And they're like, well, you're asking me to do this all by myself. And they're like, why am I not collaborating with others? Right. What's happening today in terms of brain drain and what's happening with folks on dropping out of the market, the business job market, they're saying, I'm looking for a job where I can make a difference. Right. Is the business giving me a vision for the difference? And am I doing something that I get to do what I practice now for 12 or 16 or 18 years? And are you going to let me do that? And that's collaborate with others. So the best people are saying, I want to collaborate with others. And all too often, business leadership is not giving them an opportunity. I spoke to Geeps, Grain Elevators and Associated Professionals. Right. And I say, the three things you want to do to enhance your work with your employees and be profitable is one, tell your employees something that you appreciate that they've done, something specific in the last week. That's number one. Number two, get them the resources they need from their perspective. Get them the resources they need from their perspective and don't micromanage. And then number three, Give them a chance to shine. And that micromanage, I come back to, we've got a stress response. This is a brief tangent. Stress response says, 
I can reduce my stress response when I have a feeling of control and I've got an element of predictability and I see progress. Right. So the micromanager likes to have the control, but if you want your employees to feel valued, you've got to give them control, let them go. Yeah. And, and in terms of rituals, we get up in the day, you start your day with a ritual. Your brain says, this is really cool. We're doing the ritual. We're okay. Okay. And then in terms of progress, take big things and make them up in the little parts and accept those and reinforce those. That was a brief tangent. I'm back to those three things. And the third one was give your employees a chance to shine right. administratively or in leadership. So I'm talking to these folks that are a grain elevator in Kansas. I talked to six people. When I do a keynote, I talk to six people. And I said, <laughs> to this guy who's a grain elevator guy in Kansas said, so right. what do you do in order to give your employees a chance to shine? He goes, we work 70 hours a week for three quarters of the year. And a quarter of the year, we work about 35 hours. And one of my employees, all he wants to do is go and talk to fourth graders. And he goes and he talks to these fourth graders and he says, did you know you rode to school today on a soybean? They go like, what? He goes, yeah, it's all biodiesel. And do you know when you write with a crayon, you're writing with a soybean? They go, what? Yeah, those are made out of soybeans. And he said, do you know what we do here? And they go, yeah, well, we raise soybeans and other crops around. He goes, no, no, we feed the world. Let that sink in. Mm -hmm. We feed the world and we feed feed to animals. So people who have had no protein have protein. People who have limited protein get more protein and we feed the world. Now, I'm going to take that comment and say, what do you do Okay, to whoever? And they'll tell me, I make widgets. And I'll come back in and say, no, I want you to think about that much more broadly. What's the vision that we have? Right. And what is it we're really doing? And then bring that home and people have to feel valued for what they're doing, how they're contributing, how I'm collaborating with others to make things happen. And the best people want to be there. If we're not doing that, I'm going over there where they do. Right. And today we talked about those texts. I can text today and say, hey, how is it where you're working? This all starts at the top too, doesn't it? Like organizations yeah. that are old school where they don't foster an atmosphere or there's too much internal competition and they don't foster that atmosphere or climate of collaboration. Mm -hmm. You've got backstabbing problems. You've got distrust. You've got infighting and hoarding of intelligence. I know you talk about the intelligence and intelligence really becomes the power. They don't give credit where they should be. There's high turnover. It goes on and on and on versus conversely, when you have an atmosphere of collaboration, one where innovation can thrive, you get things like breakthrough results, you get common visions, you get shared responsibility, you get openness, acceptance, engaged employees, and then ultimately you get an improved bottom line. So there's lots to gain from and within an organization. So how do we promote that within our organization? Is there a, a strategy used to in order to maybe turn things around if we're in an atmosphere where we don't have as much collaboration as we'd like? You get what you measure. We tend to measure things that are easy to measure. Right. So if I want to enhance collaboration, I was a frontline manager to executive level. And what I would do is I'd come back in and say, what are some things that you have done with others in this last year to make an impact on whatever? Okay. And when it comes time for you to put together your commitments for the following year, am I going to recognize and reward collaboration with folks who worked across silos to get different things done? This is just an example. Sure. But look for creative ways to recognize and reward folks that are instilling and carrying out the values you have. I do strategic planning with firms. And when I come in and talk with strategic planning, here I am with a board of directors and I'll say, you got a mission. Okay. Got that. We got a vision. Yeah, we got that. You got values. We got that. And then I ask them, which of those values do you really believe you do? And what will your employees say when I say those are our values? And you're as good as your last worst act. So really think about this. And I've been with closely held firms where the owner is vehement that those are my values. And I believe that. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then that's actually a very powerful statement that he or she believes that. And they want to see this in their organization. I can go a long way with that firm. Okay. Right. Others will say, well, yeah, we know we don't really do this. 
but we got to have it because all the other firms have value. So I got to have my They're values. paying lip too. service to it, but they really yeah. don't believe it. Yeah. yeah. And then I'm working with them. So what do you want to do here? I'm just helping you strategically. Yeah. What do you want to do? Do you want to improve in that? Do you care about this? The firm has to decide what to them are their values. Right. I, I comment that I'm never out to change anyone's beliefs but I am out to find values that we have in common. Even when I'm mediated between gangs, okay? Right. There are people who killed each other, okay? And then they've killed siblings of other leaders. I mean, right. this is serious stuff. And I talk to them and I say, what would you like to have happen? And in one situation, I had this gang leader and I had been in there for a couple of hours and I asked the question several different ways of what would you like to have happen? And finally, he came back and said, I want no disrespect going forward. That's what I want. I want no disrespect going right. forward. Just want to be so then I had to work with them. What does that mean, et cetera? What's but what did like? he, just think about it. He wanted respect. We can solve this whole thing. If they can respect me, I'll respect them. If we can respect each other. We can make this work. And they did. It had to do with a line of where right. one gang goes to a certain point, another one, a certain point. And they negotiated this line in a demilitarized zone between the two that neither of them would go into that area kind of deal. Right. But that's a long story short. But the bottom line, the bottom line is focus on values not beliefs, focus on values and get an understanding of what's important to them on values and you on values. And what can we do to make those our common values going forward? And when you've got people together with you on values, we're on board now. Yeah. Well said. There's definitely an underlying theme in your book and it's a nice little quote. It's not about me. It's all about we, but we starts with me. So we can Mm -hmm. use that for ourselves as individuals as well. And it's really about, hey, focus and how do I pay attention? How do I build relationships? How do I listen actively? How do I actually pay attention without worrying about what my agenda might be? Any further comment on that at all? Well, I want to tell you, this has been a lot of fun. It's been outstanding. You're an engaging host. You've really done your homework. I really appreciate what you've done in terms of your homework. Thank you. And this is very enjoyable for me. And I learned things from you today too, Michael. So thank you for having me as a guest. This was a very enlightening and enriching, fulfilling experience for me too. Thank you, sir. Well, thanks, Mike. And we'll post all your contact information and along with links. And you've got lots of things people can download off your website. They can reach out to you and connect with you, whether they want to bring you internally or for a presentation. And I know you do a good job with that. And so whether you're a business person wanting to create deeper relationships with clients and prospects, or you're a business leader wanting to create a culture of trust, or you're a regular person who's simply wants to treat others with respect, just like you've talked about, Mike, the collaboration effect by Michael Gregory will give you the tools you need to achieve these results. So Mike, thanks so much for your insights and being our guest today. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Michael. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My production team is Beth Smith and Kendra Vickers. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting.